Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. The BIV Tech Panel featuring Progressive's Ali Portet and Glue Technology Society's Linda Focus, they are here to discuss everything from a new ride-hailing app that looks to get a head start in British Columbia over Uber and Lyft. We can talk more about Cater. That's Cater with a K. And we're also going to talk about strict new rules for drones here in Canada and maybe why the market for streaming video services look like they are going to get even more fragmented going forward in 2019. And a little later on, Tantalus Labs CEO Dan Sutton, he's going to join us for a separate segment discussing whether Canada's heavily regulated cannabis market puts it at risk of maybe losing its first mover advantage if and when larger countries, aka, I don't know, the United States, we'll have to wait and see if those countries begin legalizing on a much broader scale. But first, let's talk technology. And with us now, it is Ali Pordad. He's a CEO of Progressa calling in from Toronto and Linda Fakas. She is also on the line and she is the CEO of Glue Technology Society. Guys, thanks for joining us. And let's begin the conversation with a little talk about Cater. For those who think I am speaking about, you know, those food services. No, that's not it. Cater is a made in BC ride hailing app that is partnering with Vancouver Taxi Association. This is announced last week and It's going to be offering ride-hailing services for some taxis before Uber and Lyft will be allowed on the roads. And they're able to do that because the taxis already have the proper parameters with regards to, say, insurance as well as drivers. I'm going to throw this question out to you, Linda. When we talk about ride-hailing, do you think this is what most commuters here in British Columbia have in mind? No. I think what we have in mind is other options to the existing taxi service that can give us cars where we where we need them crossing boundaries when we need that to happen um uh we have a very different experience with uber as we than we do with lyft and i think we want choices lots of choices and taxis are not so far for me anyway have not presented a great choice in this city i don't see cater making that any better yeah well ali from your perspective i mean do you think that there are concerns though that this Cater app is going to give these potential competitors, Uber and Lyft, maybe, well, Cater's going to have an unfair advantage to a certain degree. They're going to be operating in the province for months and months. We still don't even know when Uber and Lyft will actually be able to enter the province. Is this, I guess, a free marketplace as we would like to consider it? I mean, it is. I think the government's doing, it looks like the government's doing everything they can to set Cater up to succeed uh, being at a local company. But I don't think this is going to work. I mean, I think Uber and, and Lyft uh, have superior platforms. I, I personally have used Cater for the last year and a half. It's, it's actually been available for about a year and a half. Um, the taxi ride-hailing component is not. It's, I think it's in beta and going to be released soon. But this is not a superior product. At the end of the day, it comes down to product and, and what you're offering the consumer. And are you solving the problem? And this is just making taxis uh, available on an app. And we don't need that. We need uh, we need more cars on the road for, for uh, that you know that offer ride sharing, and we need to drive the cost cost down because transportation is also expensive for many people around the city. Um, and so, uh, as uh, you know, I totally agree with Linda. We, we need options. Consumers need options, and this is not uh, 
solving that. Yeah, you know, maybe a cynical person would point out the fact that this company, Cater, has strong ties to the current government, the BCNDP, and this looks to be an effort to tie taxis into ride-hailing. Linda, from your perspective, do you think there's a risk, though, that maybe Uber and Lyft could just give up on this market altogether? They've been trying to get in for a long, long time, but they just may look at what the market conditions are looking like right now and say, no thanks, it's no longer going to be worth it anymore. I can't quite believe they'll back down that easily. These are highly competitive people running these highly competitive companies. And what we're actually talking about is we're kind of waiting on ICBC to give them the insurance okay. And then I expect uh, those two apps will crush whoever's in this market. They have they have great might and a great desire to be the number one player, both of them, and a lot of money. Um, and these aren't just apps, right? We're not just tapping on a map and getting a car. There's a lot of infrastructure that goes into those decisions these apps make. And I think that Uber and Lyft want to be a player in whatever that delivery service, people, products, whatever that's going to be in Vancouver. They want to play here. We're the largest market in North America without it. And I do not believe they will back down. Okay, so it's not the world. Yeah, Ali, I'm very curious. So just from your own experience, because I know for a fact that you've used Uber uh, quite a bit when you're outside of Vancouver, and you've actually used this Cater app, which I have not, I, I should get on it uh, just to test it out. But what, how, how do those two apps compare in your own experience? Well, I haven't tried the, the, ride hailing, the ride hailing component of the Cater app yet. I believe that's just in beta now and, and not to be released for a little bit longer. Uh, but Cater, at least for their rollout for the last year and a half, is is being about, uh, you know, ha- having local um, availability to get your car home safely. So if you're out, uh, you know, at a restaurant and you've had a couple a couple bottles of wine, uh, you you call your, you know, you go on the Cater app. Uh, somebody will come. They're typically actually work for the taxi companies, and uh, they will drive your car home for you and uh, with you in it. And so that's that was sort of the foundation. Uh, of the software, so they don't really compare. But uh, again, you know, as, as as Linda was saying, uh, Uber and Lyft are, are just superior technologies, and they and they do come with much much more than simply uh, uh, you know picking up you pick, picking you up and taking you from place to place. It comes with intelligence and insight that does make life better for the consumer. Well, speaking of things to get around in, uh, drones. Uh, well, I guess you'd have to be a very light person to get around in a uh-huh. drone. But uh, Ottawa has <laughs> just introduced strict new rules for these drones. It's going to be requiring operators to acquire different levels of certification depending on what kind of flying they intend to do. You also have to register the drones moving forward. Uh, from your perspective, are the Wild West days over according to, I guess, what our reputation used to be, say, Linda? And is this maybe a, a good thing or a bad thing for businesses uh, with regards to the pursuit of a lot of the opportunities that exist within drones? Yeah, I think the Wild West days are over, thank goodness. Um, the UK and Canada had the least... Um onerous rules with flying these unmanned aircraft around our skies. Uh, This is going to be an explosive transportation sector. We want to make sure this is regulated, that the people flying these unmanned aircraft um, are capable of doing so appropriately. The disruptions we saw at Gatwick and at Heathrow are really simple examples of how this technology can be used to great detriment to areas where these drones are flying. So we want people with restrictions in place, uh, insured, knowing what they're doing, following the rules. 
And Ali, I think a lot of this stuff is just a lot of crossing T's, dotting I's, making the rules a little bit simpler. And I, I think that's what was happening before in Canada is a lot of the rules were actually a little bit more complex than they needed to be. I think they've simplified a lot of things. Do you think you know this simple is better sort of technique is just going to be an overall win for this industry, even though on the surface, you know, you don't always associate strict new rules with a win for an industry? Yeah, I mean, this could be an example where it, it actually happens because, you know, I think if you look around, I mean, it doesn't really look like drones ever took off, uh, mind the pun. Uh, it ne- they never really took off as an industry. Uh, it's it sort of, and maybe it was sort of, maybe this lack of clear rules sort of hung over the industry. You didn't get uh, the, re- you, know, you know, at one point they were talking about retailers using drones to drop off goods at your house and a variety of other sort of practical reasons to have them, but it never really went anywhere. And I, and I wonder if it's, you know, if, if we could correlate that with the lack of clear rules and oversight that, that existed. And so maybe this is a good thing for the industry. Yeah, you know, I was speaking to a company myself, and they were talking a lot about how there's still a lot of geospatial uh, applications that uh, need to be tapped into. And I think that with the new rules, I'm actually excited about the prospects and that you can actually have businesses, they're not going to be worried about a lot of liability concerns going forward because of the new rules. And so they actually think it's going to open them up quite a bit. Um, guys, uh, I'm also curious, you know, over the holidays, you, we haven't chatted since then, but uh, I caught up on a lot of that binge watching that I needed to do. And it got me thinking, you know, uh, what is the future going to be like with regards to the streaming video services, especially now, just yesterday, it became apparent that NBC Universal is getting in on the streaming video services game. So already they're going to be going up against Netflix and Hulu here in Canada. And it's not clear whether this NBC Universal app is going to be available in Canada. I suspect not, or there could be a partner app. But here we have Crave TV. CBS All Access has made its app available in the past couple months. We have Apple. They're launching one. Disney, they're launching one with regards to video services. Uh, Ali, from your perspective, I mean, the shows that we watch, is it going to be a bit of a different viewing experience, at least for you? Yeah, I mean, it might be. Uh, it sounds like we have a trend here of uh, content providers moving to sort of a la carte, and uh, it makes sense. If you have content that people are uh, are interested in and are, and are paying for either uh, inherently through a subscription to some other provider um, or they have a hardware that has it built in, uh, you may be positioned to start to monetize uh, your service in a different way. And that's what, looks, that's what it looks like NBC is doing here. Uh, I mean, they're seeing uh, other companies also mobilize and, and come out with new content. And so, you know, with the trend, uh, the trend moving towards online, they're just, I think, cementing, uh, cementing another way to get access to their content and are they able to charge for it. People are watching their, uh, their shows. Yeah, so Linda... I like are, are... the way that NBC... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Well, yeah, I was just going to ask you, do you think maybe those heydays of just that consumer experience are coming to an end with regards to, say, Netflix? We could just have like a single subscription at Netflix, get most of the stuff that we wanted. But now there's going to be so much more content. Your friends are going to be watching shows. And if you want to keep up with what they're uh, watching, if you just want to enjoy something, you're going to have to be subscribing to like four or five different services or even actually saving any money versus, you know, dropping cable at that point. Well, exactly. I, I don't. I think we're not going to end up saving money. We're going to end up spending more, for instance, because NBC's proposition is that the um, the authorized subscribers, the people who are getting NBC through their cable provider, will get this app for free, for instance. So they're finding ways, as I expect the other 
broadcasters well to keep us connected to our our cable connections. Uh, so I think we're going to probably stick with our cable connections and add all these apps on. So my guess is we're paying more per month for more more content. It's content wars. There's content coming at us from everywhere. It's going to get very messy. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe in the short term, I agree with that, uh, Linda. I think over the long term, uh, Tyler, what you'll probably see is these content providers starting to link up more and more. So just last week, I think on the show, we were talking about Apple uh, linking up with, um, uh, I can't remember who it was, Linda. Do you remember who ended, Apple oh, was linking, linking Samsung? up with? Samsung? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Oh, and, Samsung, and, and, yeah. Yeah, and so, and so that's just one example, right, of, of uh, providers starting to link up uh, for the greater good, uh, ultimately, you know, benefiting the consumer. At the end of the day, we don't have to be on as many devices. Uh, that might that might pose the sort of the beginning of Apple TV, or at least a hardware Apple TV uh, becoming uh, the dinosaur. But uh, it's just one example of I think with time, uh, the, the the entities that are focusing on content will start to link up, and uh, that's probably will result in lower costs over the long term. Uh, for consumers, and I think what the how the greater good is going to be greater is if we can get sports and news separated from these broadcasters. As soon as that happens, as soon as my husband can see all the sports he wants through an app, yeah, we will no longer require our Telus optic connection. Thank goodness yep. for that. Yeah, that'll be that'll be the end of the cable TV as we know it for sure. Well, guys, and you're already and we're already start, we're already starting to see a trend to that. Uh, you know, with with online, with Twitter, with Instagram, a lot of these sports channels and news channels are putting their content, uh, you know, right in, right into Twitter now. So the trend has already started, whether we whether we want to, you know, totally believe it or not. But I think over time, the content providers will start to link up. I mean, Twitter could get acquired. They've been talking about Twitter getting acquired by Disney for a number of years now. And I think that's sort of all of those things will manifest themselves in uh, hopefully a better experience for the consumer long term. Yeah, I think There's the sports two. conversation is a, is a very good one that you brought up. Uh, and has your husband at any point used, I, I believe it's pronounced DAZN, but it's D-A-Z-N, uh, that app that's uh, being used for sports streaming at this point? Uh, uh, you know, he's, a, he's a classic streamer in that he wants his content at the click of a button. He doesn't want to have to do anything extra. He's like, why would I go to that app when I can just PVR it and watch it later? Yeah. So I've had a hard time pushing him over there so whatever solution comes at <laughs> us for him he's not old by the way uh, he, whatever solution comes at us has to be simple it's got to be really simple like netflix simple right i'm not yeah. saying design's not that but but it's another word he would have to think about yeah no well excellent uh ali linda thank you both for joining us on the program today we'll speak to you next week and uh that is ali Pordad, ceo of progressa linda Focus, ceo of glue technology society stay with us dan sutton from tantalus labs he joins us right after this So three months into recreational cannabis legalization, and I think we're seeing various governments and various organizations, they're now actually responding to maybe some of what we would call shortcomings of what has unfolded here. And we're also in a better position to gauge whether our market might be, I don't know, a little bit too regulated with us today. It's Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be here. Okay, so let's look at it. Right now, Ontario is backtracking, saying it's no longer going to have this no caps on retail licenses. 
Alberta has just placed a moratorium on licenses, and New Brunswick Cannabis Authority has just laid off 60 workers. They're realizing kind of the realities of what this retail model really means. Is this kind of like reality check mode for what is a nascent industry, or does it signal maybe something else that's going on here in Canada? So I think there's two core factors that are driving a lack of supply in the industry, which is then inhibiting the expansion of retail in various provinces. One is the regulations. We decided in Canada that we wanted to achieve an elite quality assurance standard that would minimize risk in a way that no other jurisdiction had ever entertained. I personally think that that's a meritous goal. We can be sure that with the highest degrees of efficiency, we are getting product to consumers that is without pesticides, that's effectively tested by certified labs, that's packaged in child-resistant packaging, and to meet those standards requires a high barrier to entry. Hence why we don't have a lot of LPs relative to a Washington state or a Colorado, relatively smaller populations. It's difficult to get across the line. And as a result, not as many people have, and they aren't able to supply the market at equilibrium on day one. The other factor is that there are a lot of large LPs that acquired big greenhouse infrastructures, greenhouse infrastructures that I knew and I said on this show various times would be very difficult to operationalize and commission to their full scale capacity. We have seen substantial crop loss. We have seen substantial crop loss from various different uh, large LPs and those million square foot environments, those really are the mechanisms that are at least going to get us to the baseline of equilibrium of supply and demand. So that's a lack of agricultural expertise. There are two new entrants in our local market, uh, Howlings, a large tomato producer in the lower mainland, and Bevo Farms, two elite level agriculturalists, highly intelligent, technology oriented, very effective at growing vegetables. As they learn to cultivate cannabis at scale consistently, we will see large firms like that be able to make a splash in this supply demand constraint. However, time is not on our side. And you say time is not on our side. Is that with regards to the fact that we could see larger jurisdictions moving forward with regards to recreational cannabis and this so-called first mover advantage that Canada has, even though, of course, Uruguay was the first one to legalize, but we're a bigger jurisdiction than even that. Is that kind of the time not on our side thing, or am I going in a totally different direction than maybe what you were thinking here? When I say time is not on our side, I mean that because of the regulatory process that we have, it does take slower and steadier mobilization of these assets. So I personally believe we're probably about 36 months out from seeing any really material supply-demand equilibrium. Mm. And that's just in terms of volume of cannabis. It doesn't really account for the diversity of user preferences and how well those are serviced. Uh, That could be shorter. I I may be a bit bearish just because I know what kind of agricultural expertise is necessary. But in that time, we will see larger jurisdictions start to come to market. I think the United States is really interesting. I think the conversations that are happening there are great. And ultimately, more entrepreneurial brain power into an ever-globalizing cannabis industry. This is a huge positive for all of us, and it will certainly keep Canadian firms honest. So do you think then those larger organizations, or I should say those larger jurisdictions, are going to just naturally face the same issues that Canada would have already figured out? by the time that they become legalized? Or do you think maybe that they're going to be watching, observing, and avoiding those same mistakes that Canada made? And maybe that's why we could lose that first mover advantage. I think Canada has made a large long-term investment into robust regulations. If in the United States we see a more laissez-faire strategy of regulations, there will be more firms to market. There will be a more diversified economy of cannabis entrepreneur. However, then they will face 
the consequences of not having tight quality assurance as we see in Canada. And that's already playing out in the United States. Something like a really ugly percentage of vaporizers, for instance, are now testing for lead and other contaminants that are coming from the often Asian manufactured pods that are, are the inputs to, to that supply chain. Uh, we see pesticide testing sometimes coming up poorly and then being masked. There are labs that can be bought in the United States, and that is its own set of regulatory constraints and hurdles. So perhaps Canada is, while we're, while we're drinking cannabis beverages, we're also drinking a lot of water. So the, the next day we'll be a little safer and happier in our potential hangover. The United States, when they do legalize, which is also not a sure thing and is a long way off, we may see them be a bit more bullish at the party and then suffer the consequences on Monday morning. Oh, where do you fall with regards to maybe some people are out there saying uh, maybe Canada is a little bit too regulated? Because, of course, Tanless Labs, you've got, you guys have gone through that very exhaustive process of getting licensed. You've had to jump through a lot of hoops. So I'm sure you have nothing horrible to say about any of the regulators that are out there. But tell me, where do you fall in this argument? Are we too regulated or are we, I guess, if we want to use the Goldilocks analogy, did we find something that's just right or is there, you know, a little bit more to go? If you'd asked me two years ago, I probably would have said that we were overly regulated uh, simply because I, I understand the level of sophistication necessary for large enterprises to enter this marketplace and ultimately to scale. But today, I recognize that this cannabis industry is going to be evolving and changing for 50 years to come. And to have a strong baseline of quality assurance where our Canadian customer base knows that they're getting a clean product that's consistent and safe, that really underpins the the entire quality promise from an already contentious crop. Knowing where your cannabis is coming from and, and knowing that 999 times out of 1,000, it's going to be safe to consume and, and consistent with what the label says that it is, that is a regulatory, a regulatory paradigm that I'm proud to exist in, and I know that firms are going to figure it out. It's not quite as accessible for a diversity of entrepreneurs who may think that they deserve a place at the table because they've cultivated cannabis before, but if you're not ready for elite quality assurance, standards, then you're not ready for this market. And that's something that I think is a huge positive about the Canadian framework. Well, I think that's a very good question, though. I mean, look, we, we can look at what the black market was able to produce. And I think we could have made the argument that on day one, we could have been meeting all of the supply demands that were going on here in Canada. But you're looking at more from a long-term play. If we wanted to be very serious about this entire industry, it's best that we have the regulations that we're going to need five, 10 years from now, even if we can't meet demand on day one. Is that kind of the idea? We live in a right now world. We live in an instantly available information set. We live in a world where the stories of the day are as widely disseminable as they've ever been. And what I see is a Canadian regulator and a Canadian set of organizations investing in the three to five year future for the consistent scalability of their product. I think that that's a huge positive. I am also curious, though, as a producer yourself, there are ideas floating out there. Maybe we could make it a little bit easier with regards to the distribution game. Um, what do you think of it? And again, not trying to get you into any sort of trouble, but what do you think about making it a little bit easier or even making it possible, that is, uh, for producers here in British Columbia to sell directly to retailers? Because right now they do have to go through the government. Uh, there's a distribution branch there used to handle, well, they stu still handle the liquor side of things, though it's essentially what they're coming from. Um, what is your position? Tyler, you never have to worry about getting me in trouble. I'm perfectly capable of doing that myself. <laughs> okay. Uh, and I think there's, once again, merits to both. And ultimately, the, the positives around privatization of a supply chain 
uh, definitely equate to a, a reduced deadweight loss. We're probably going to get a more efficient price to our end user because we're not including that uh, tariff that comes with the government distribution layer. Also, it allows for producers to have direct relationships with their retailers, allowing probably a, a more competitive pricing scheme and and ultimately just letting the the invisible hand do its work in, in terms of finding equilibrium price. Now that said, it doesn't alleviate supply constraints. So regardless of how privatized the supply chain is and the efficiencies of that supply chain, we won't really see those advantages play out until we see a supply and demand equilibrium. So to then you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater and say this is the BCLDB's fault, that's not entirely accurate. It's the scalability of the LPs that have really been problematic. So what's my opinion on the topic? Hybridization. We need to be able to have an option for large licensed producers to deliver directly to the BCLDB and take advantage of then that wide distribution net that they handle if they elect to pay that tariff. If they don't elect to pay that tariff or they can't afford to pay that tariff because these producers are smaller or micro producers, allowing them also to have farm gate sales and direct relationships with potentially regional retailers, that would then create the efficiencies of that marketplace and allow ultimately each business to select the supply chain that makes sense for it. So do you think the conversation is going to be changing within the next six months though? Because you mentioned that you're looking at maybe 36 months is when we can finally kind of figure out maybe what we're going to have to be at with regards to meeting supply demands. But I mean, it's just been fascinating to watch this entire rollout. And I'm wondering if the conversation is going to be turning to something else entirely, maybe the next six to 12 months. What, what What's your take on maybe the, some of the things that we aren't paying attention to right now that you think we might want to? Well, hopefully a few white white knights in the LP game step up their agricultural expertise to the point where they can start making these large production systems work. I agree that that would accelerate the timelines of my relatively bearish take on supply-demand equilibrium. Uh, What I think would be a mistake is to do knee-jerk government policy that tries to alleviate supply constraints without really considering the long-term implications. So I don't really know what that would look like, uh, but you know, seeing a glut of new producers come into market without the chops to be able to consistently execute in QA, fair enough. We'll see the supply chain headlines change, but then we'll see other headlines around risk of use, around potentially adulterated uh, crops, around recalls. Those will all accelerate. So I think it's we're, we're asking everybody to be patient. This is the beginning of something amazing. It's a born and bred Canadian advantage, but at the end of the day, we need to play it out and, and let these producers get to a place where they can consistently supply under the current QA paradigm. Last question for you. Uh, this is a topical one, but Aurora Cannabis just announced that they are uh, taking over Whistler Medical. I believe it's a deal worth up to $175 million. Uh, do you think more of these kind of blockbuster deals are still going to be in the works for the foreseeable future? Or do, have we kind of reached the peak at this point? Well, it's hard to see who else is out there to buy. Yeah, I know the Whistler team and the Aurora team really well. Uh, intelligent operators, intelligent finance people on both teams. It's really great to see a a, a private British Columbian company capitalize on that kind of uh, growth and validation in their value. Um, but it certainly pushes Tantalus Labs to the point where I believe it's easy to claim that we're the largest private cannabis company in Canada and certainly one of the largest in the world. So there aren't really many buys out there left. And it will be cool to see smaller cannabis companies that are coming up in the business. Uh, Maybe they're just getting licensed now or they're about to get licensed. If they have some kind of core advantage, a brand differentiation or some lane that they excel at, I think we'll continue to see uh, 
buyouts of those companies and, and agglomeration effects. We have some very well-funded large LPs. So that's probably a, a, a function of a, light, a, a preference for agglomeration effects. But at the same time, we won't see any more hundreds of millions of dollar deals because all the big LPs have already been bought up. But just for your own personal curiosity, when news like this comes out, does this put anything in perspective, whether it comes to your investors or the whatnot, about what a possible valuation would be for your company down the road? Yes, absolutely. It shows our investors that we're on the right track. If you know Whistler had a had a few years on us out in the marketplace, and and their product is widely revered, it's actually seen as some of the best in Canada. And I'm so proud that that's happening in our backyard. You know, these people carrying the torch for BC Bud. If Tantalus Labs can carry that same torch and inspire that same excitement in our user base, it just clearly demonstrates that we've got a. a a great path ahead of us for growth and ultimately that the value that we're creating now is exciting to investors and exciting to our end user. Well, excellent. Dan, always a pleasure. Thanks for joining us on the show. Thanks so much. That is Dan Sutton, CEO of Tantalus Labs, and that's it for the show today. We're going to be back tomorrow. For now, you can find our archives on iTunes and Stitcher. And we'll also encourage you to share with your friends and maybe leave a review. It'll help others find this podcast. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. Thanks for listening. 